0: Heard that question. I heard that question in retreat after retreat, going all the way back. Our fear and our despair arising in in this present time are real experiences. They are real. And of course, certain global phenomena seem worse than others but the stories we make up, maybe mostly without even being aware of them about how nothing was ever as bad like it is now. I I just think Ty might invite us to this mantra. Are you sure? I've spent time in rural Asia. Um, Three or more people on this retreat have spent time in Africa. Wars are happening right now, in addition to the things we're maybe more used to thinking about week by week. And as I read from Tai's book yesterday, the impacts of older wars are still being felt. So daily living has meant struggle for many, many humans, not to mention other species. Going all the way back. I mean, this is the first truth. Yes, there is pain, there is pain. And then again, the second truth, what choices am I making that feed into the suffering? And this is not to reproach ourselves, but we need to know the answer. We need to ask and not just once, (laughs) it's a practice. People ask the Buddha the question, how do I not fall into despair 2,600 years ago? And these practices of the Four Noble Truths, they're his answer. Um, And more concretely now, I mean, in our current culture, Tai often spoke about, and I myself, tend to look first and foremost at mindfulness of consumption. And this came up, I think, last year in our retreat. As Buddhist meditators, our practice of right diligence means noticing and keeping in mind what waters our seeds of well-being and doing those things that help it manifest as much as possible. So consuming, reading, inspiring things, and not only Dharma books, but biographies of courageous, real people, like Rosa Parks, just to name one, who made a huge difference just by making a different choice about where she was gonna sit on her bus Connecting heart to heart with a kind friend. We need to do this regularly. Concentrating on loving kindness and on compassion. And I'll go into a related practice um, in a little bit. And right diligence is equally knowing what waters are seeds of suffering and doing our best not to have those things happen. How many times a day are you reading or speaking or mentally reciting words like breakthrough COVID, I see you, mandates? And when you do, what happens in your bodily sensation? are you present when you when you talk about them are you carried off what happens in your heart what happens in your emotions and what arises in your thoughts and beliefs how many times a day whatever the experiences are, it could be, it would be great if the answer is, I feel compassion, I feel tenderheartedness, I feel um, love and a desire to to help. If it's, I feel scared, I feel angry, I feel despairing, maybe we need to Resource with what I was just saying, the the things that water the seeds of well-being. Maybe we need to consume less of those those words. And just be aware of how many times a day these things are getting reinforced. Um, yeah. And that's what this morning sutra and Thay's commentary, our appointment with life, are asking us to become conscious of. So we can make a free choice. Instead of remaining enslaved to habitual, unconscious patterns that just keep the suffering going and making it bigger. That's what I wrote my sample personal precept about that I shared yesterday. Um, And I know uh, some people asked if they could have that and I'll make sure that it's available with the other things that will get sent out. But each one of us as practitioners, we must know the truth about how much time per week we can consume news in a way that helps us contribute meaningfully to our community. And at what amount of time it becomes something that actually waters our seeds of fear, hatred, and despair. We have to be very real and honest with ourselves. And it may change at different times, perhaps because of other things going on. You know, maybe if there's a crisis in our family, we're able to take in less of that. Or maybe when we're feeling really well, we can take in more and, use it as a catalyst. So this is our practice of being aware of what's really happening day by day and responding appropriately. I personally think the number for me of hours per week is no more than two or three. And it may feel better if I save it all for one day and read the more reflective kind of pieces that have had the benefit of a few days distance and perspective rather than the breathless breaking story of the hour. So this may mean, I mean, getting very concrete now, if your partner insists on watching an hour of CNN every evening after dinner, maybe you make that into your outdoor walking meditation time or a time when you phone loved ones or do a fun hobby. Um, so, uh, another question that came in earlier was this one, uh, it says, I've been working a lot with the five remembrances lately, singing them to myself throughout the day. And I'll just pause in the question. So just to briefly review what the remembrances, these remembrances are there, <clears throat> excuse me, a handful of sentences reminding us of the fact that we living beings are of the nature to grow old, to get sick, to die, and that all we cherish will one day leave us, one day. So the, our friend says, these remembrances help me to hold an intention to live and love more fully in the here and now. In actual practice though, That is hard. I take my loved ones for granted. I treat them as though they will live forever, acting with impatience and selfishness and letting small annoyances keep me from expressing my full love and appreciation. I have experienced loss before, but when it's not immediate, it's easy to forget. I'm curious about how I might bring the five remembrances out of the abstract realm and into my daily lived experience. Thank you. This is um, such a beautiful applied question. Um, yeah, so those sentences are very broad and a bit abstract. Um, they're speaking to the whole vast arc of our condition. Um, And I think what our friend is describing as to what's actually happening in the practice of it, it sounds to me like it could be a sign that it's maybe a good time to drop the reciting of the sentences and move more into the close in uh, and bring into your concentration a more three-dimensional experience. So here's just one example for each one of the people you're wanting to be more fully present for, what if you were to visualize what it might be like in specific life situations after that person is dead? Really evoke it with all your senses, the room or the place where you are and they are not, the things that would be happening if the person were there, but at this time, no longer will be happening, that you're visualizing, and how it feels in your body as you contemplate that likelihood, that likely prospect, how it feels in your emotions, just noticing if that makes it more real, and if it touches a tenderness, uh, for example, if you get annoyed with your father because of ways he may have hurt you in the past, um, but your child adores him in the present moment, you might visualize the day when your child goes into your dad's house and goes from room to room searching for him and is very sad not to find him. And just allow yourself to feel the empathy not only with your child, but with yourself as your child's parent witnessing that and how much it means to you as your child's parent, that connection that your child has with their grandparent, their grandfather. That's just one example. Um, So you use your creativity and your real life situations to contemplate. likely things that that will happen um, and what it'll feel like that can help make it more real and alive now to really feel the gift of their presence and offer ours Um, a second thing i would suggest is bringing your practice directly to your own emotions including subtler ones that aren't necessarily um you know a big a big uh, anger or a fight or something but just these sort of little day-to-day things isn't that what they sometimes say right the the divorce isn't over the big things it's over like the they they left the cap off the toothpaste one time too many we need to bring our mindfulness and our self-compassion to those emotions um so Bring that to the reality of your impatience, of your annoyance. You know, let it feel fully seen and accepted and held and listened to by your larger loving presence. Bring loving presence to these moments of your own experience. What is that part of you really needing or wanting? Or not wanting? What would it most like to receive from your loving heart in the moment? Um, You might enjoy reading Tai's book, Anger. I brought my copy. I have to move my cat off my hand to show it. (laughs) His book, Anger, has a lot of inspiration um, about working with different levels of irritation or aversion. And then I also think the practice of forgiveness, first toward yourself and then toward um, each of these people that you find yourself taking for granted could be beneficial. Sometimes it's just old hurts that have been so buried that it feels more like a numbness or an indifference. But often underneath the the crust of indifference, there's there's anger, um, there's resentment. And forgiveness does seem to be pretty relevant to me, at least to the situation we all find ourselves in as a country. Right now, So I'd like to share some things about that practice. And first of all, uh, I'm a little wary around the word forgiveness because it can be a charged word, at least in the circles I've been around um, early in life and over the years. What I sometimes see happening is I'll feel or someone else feels stuck in blaming or judging someone for something they did. And then um, we notice that we're judging and blaming. And then we pile on top of that, more judging and blaming toward ourselves for not letting go of judging and blaming, (laughs) like not being a good spiritual people. So we firmly instruct ourselves then to forgive and let go. And then pretty soon what happens? the anger, the resentment just snap back twice as big and twice as hot, right? And this is a real circle of suffering. So if we look deeply into our tendencies to judge and blame or just kind of pull away when something we care about has been hurt or seems to be threatened, Tara Brock likes to use a metaphor for how this can go. Um, It's where we're walking in the woods and we see a dog standing next to a tree. We say, oh, hi there, cute doggy. Are you lost? And we reach out to pet them. And the dog's reaction is to snarl and lunge out to bite us. And after jumping back, we say, oh, you're a bad dog. You're a mean and nasty dog. You should be kept permanently locked up. That's that immediate response to our having been threatened or even bitten, especially when we were reaching out to connect. We were letting ourselves be vulnerable. We got hurt. And then in this this metaphor, when we look more carefully at the dog's situation there, we actually see that one of the dog's paws is caught in a trap. So this being is obviously feeling enormous pain helplessness and fear and through no fault of their own so they react out of that and then we react and if we don't look more deeply we quickly get caught up in that notion of the bad other and then things will spiral downward from there does that sound familiar (laughs) um Tai always taught us, too, that when someone suffers deeply and can't find any relief, the people around them are going to suffer, too. So in that metaphor of the dog with a leg and a trap, we can see that really all behavior is the product of causes and conditions. And of course, this is made so well-known in Tai's poem, Call Me By My True Names. And in the quote that I read yesterday by Longfellow, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each one's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So, somewhere there is a trap that every hurtful or difficult person's leg is caught in. And that includes our own leg, the parts of ourselves that we don't like. So regarding the practice of forgiveness, um, Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock, among many others, um, teach forgiveness practice regularly. And of course, in our own Plum Village tradition, um, we practice beginning anew. When these teachers, um, Jack and Tara, for example, when they teach about forgiveness practice, they're quick to emphasize what it does and does not mean. So they emphasize that forgiveness does not mean that anything and everything someone has done is perfectly fine and we'll just keep forgiving them and go on allowing it to happen. We can forgive a person and at the very same time be firmly determined not to participate in the thing happening again. And do everything in our power to prevent it. It's possible to forgive a person. While also choosing never to see them again. Because it simply isn't safe for us to do so. Physically or emotionally. Hopefully that's. A very rare example. But it is possible. What is meant by forgiveness practice is taking back our energy from hating someone or cutting them out of our heart, blocking them out of our heart. It's choosing not to engage in the story, making them into an enemy or a bad other. True names, right? And this points to the subject of appropriate boundaries, as I was just referring to. I mean, in my own experience, like maintaining healthy boundaries does not have to conflict with forgiving myself or the other person. And I would almost say it's more the opposite. Like the more I really know the reality of um, what's too much for me, Um, my own boundaries around behaviors and um, and I empower myself to respect them then the more I'm able to let go actually of blaming or resenting the other person I can just let them know without judgment this is what I need um, in order for us to go forward together and it's not a demand it's just it's the reality as I've been able to see it so far by looking deeply and honestly at my suchness and perhaps their suchness as best I'm able to see it. Or to say it the other way around, when my boundaries with respect to the behavior of another person or another part of myself are very porous or shaky or non-existent, I'm more likely to end up um, kind of lashing out at some point and judging and blaming and bad othering as, as a way to try and protect myself. And it's been said that holding a grudge against someone is like drinking a cup of poison and hoping the other person will die from it. And this has been proven literally true in research showing that chronic stress, of which holding grudges is a standout example, holding, um, chronic stress increases inflammation in the body and increases illnesses caused by inflammation. And the other thing is, it's not just that building up stories of badness with these loops of thought and emotional reactivity of fear and hatred and blame. It's not only that we hurt ourselves mentally, we give ourselves mental pain and perhaps physiological pain or illness. It just doesn't even work very well at reducing harm going forward. I think when we do it, it's like we're trying to, we're trying to put up a, a barrier or some kind of protection but it's actually not very effective. I mean, judging and blaming rarely result in anyone making a genuine lasting change. It's much more often just fueling an endless cycle of hating or just annoyance or subtle kinds of shaming and acting out, passive aggressive. So with these understandings of Um, What is and isn't meant when we talk about the practice of forgiveness. Uh, I've come to see it as really um, what's often called loving kindness practice for the difficult person. That's really, to me, what forgiveness practice really is. It's loving kindness, for the person we feel easily irritated or upset about. And again, we we want to begin loving kindness practice toward ourselves. And I found myself that when I have practiced wholeheartedly loving kindness or compassion toward myself, it flows much more naturally outward to others. That's just the way it works. I don't know if others can vouch for that. And we may find that as we invite this quality of loving kindness or forgiveness for the person we've had a difficulty with, what sometimes comes up first is the opposite of loving kindness or forgiveness. Even for ourselves, right? I can't forgive that. That's unforgivable. I hate myself for that. I'll never forgive that person for that. And in that case, The invitation is to forgive our unforgivingness. Forgive ourselves for not being ready to forgive. Forgive whatever in us is unwilling to forgive. I think it's wisely said that we can't force ourselves or will ourselves to forgive. What we can do is be willing. We can cultivate a willingness, and it is a practice. Five years ago, or maybe six or seven years ago, I guess now, um, there was a four-year-old boy named Theo who was giving advice on the internet with the help of his mother. Um, she's the writer, and Terrio. And in one of the exchanges, um, a person asked, Theo, do you think it's okay to tell someone, I'm afraid to forgive you because then you might hurt me again? Or should I wait until I'm no longer afraid to try and be their friend again? And Theo's answer was, it's nice to forgive someone because then you're not angry anymore My friend David really, really wanted to play Ninja Turtles, and he just hit me in the nose. And then my nose started bleeding. He said sorry, and the teacher said it was an accident. But I couldn't forgive him because my nose was bleeding. When your nose starts bleeding, you can't forgive someone. But when my nose stopped bleeding, I could forgive him. That's like a 21st century update on another a teaching of Thais, which was when your house is burning, you don't go running down the street to investigate who did what to cause this and how they should be punished for it or tell them that you forgive them. You take care of the fire in your house first. You take care of your bleeding nose first. And often the fire that's burning in our house when we're being pulled into blame or retaliation or a self-imposed mandate to forgive, often the fire that's burning in here is grief. It's fear or it's hating, it's blaming. And if that's what's happening, we can forgive that or simply let go of the whole kind of forgiveness orientation for those moments and simply practice self-compassion for the fire, for the, for the trap that our own leg is in, for the pain in your heart about what's happened or maybe about to happen. And just to, um, to share a few few words by the poet, um, David White, from a poem called The Well of Grief. He said, those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water Cold and clear. So the other thing I did receive additional feedback about yesterday was that really a number of people in this retreat are dealing with significant physical pain. Uh, And so um, I know I mentioned yesterday um, that one of my, well, one of the resources that I am gonna send out is um, Tara Brock's book, True Refuge. It's my favorite book of hers because she talks about how she really practiced in the trenches with um, a disease that at times nearly took her life. And so I thought I might just invite us to practice together um, a guided practice in her book on bringing loving awareness to physical pain. And if you aren't feeling any physical pain, you can rejoice um, and perhaps even apply it to if you do have emotional pain because there usually is some place in the body where that's also manifesting. Mm. So you might just... And come home to your breathing in and out. Just let go now of, um, of the thinking mind and invite that compassionate, wakeful awareness. and becoming open to wherever there might be pain, particularly strong pain in the body and just acknowledging it without any agenda, without any agenda. If there is something that comes forward and wants to not be anywhere near that feeling, says, let's not feel that, I don't wanna feel that, please acknowledge that as well. It's very understandable that that we want to run away from it, that we want to cover it over. So already compassion for our fear of our pain And if that's able to relax enough to allow us to turn toward it, but just noticing any subtle attempt to push it away, to cut it off, to pull away. And just really bringing this, this allowing really open presence to the sensations. If it helps to make the openness feel supported or real, sometimes it's helpful to briefly imagine a vast blue sky that's large enough to receive all of our experience, however intense. We might also open our senses in the present to awareness of sounds. We don't have to make any effort to hear. They're just coming and going of their own accord. Closer in and farther off. We don't even have to identify them just sensory experience coming and going and sensing the space in which the sounds are occurring. and Then beginning to include in our awareness Areas of the body where the sensations are neutral or pleasant. Well, those are here too. Maybe quite a few neutral or even pleasant sensations are happening. Could be in the hands, the feet, the cheeks. Just sensing our whole body as this open field of sensations that is suffused with space. We know that on the molecular level, there's a lot of space right here. So being aware of this background of openness, also contacting the sensations that are unpleasant, we call pain. Letting the attention move toward the place or places where these sensations are most Intense or unpleasant. And if that feels difficult, we can take some more moments resting the attention in this space around the area of unpleasantness. And we can move back and forth a bit touching the pain and then sensing into the space surrounding it until we feel more able to enter more fully into the center of the unpleasantness without triggering resistance. as you directly contact the pain, allowing the sensations to reveal themselves in whatever way is natural and real. What do the sensations feel like? Is it like burning? Twisting, aching, stabbing. Does it have a shape? An area? What is its intensity? And as you sense into these, the location, the shape, the intensity, just noticing how fully can you say, yes, yes. I see you, you can be here, I'm here for you. like our four mantras. I'm here for you. I know you suffer, that's why I'm here for you. Letting go of the resistance again and again and genuinely letting this life be just as it is. letting this life be just as it is with kindness. Just continuing to feel both the pain and this larger field, neutral and pleasant sensations and spaciousness. What happens to unpleasant sensations when there is no resistance? As you experience your awareness as the soft open space that surrounds the pain, seeing if you can move again toward the center of the sensations. letting your awareness, your kindness soak into the pain like the gentlest falling rain. Is it possible to merge your loving awareness into the center or heart of the pain? And you sense the openness diffusing the painful sensations without forcing anything, but just as Ty would say, the sunlight on the bud, the petals simply open as the light penetrates them. Just continuing to notice whatever's happening As you let go over and over into the experience of the painful sensations. Plenty of room for these sensations to arise and dissolve, intensify and fade. Change and move. No holding, no tension. Exploring this, this full presence, surrendering presence. Coming to the edge of it and softening over and over. When there's no resistance, is there any sense of a self who owns the pain? or a self who's a victim of the pain. As you witness the, the waves of the feeling, discovering how you can inhabit the ocean of awareness, including all of those waves without identifying with them or even against them.